open up to Habakkuk chapter one. As I mentioned earlier, with the becoming of Advent, I reminded us that Advent is about waiting. It's about waiting for Christmas, Christ's first coming. It's also about waiting for Christ's second coming. And Advent is an active waiting, not a passive waiting. It's an anticipating. It's a longing. It's a looking forward to. It's a preparation for. So let me ask you again, as we begin, what are you waiting for this Advent? Is it a COVID vaccine, like one of you mentioned, an end to this pandemic? Is it an agreement on who won the presidential election and a moving on with the next four years? Is it a peace that you're waiting for? Is it better days ahead? What are you waiting for? What are we waiting for? To help us to wait and to teach us to wait, we're going to spend this Advent in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk will uh, teach us what to wait for. He's one of the so-called minor prophets, minor not because he or they are less important, but because they're the shorter books than the major prophets, the ones that are easier to get through in a, a few chapters. Habakkuk was a prophet. Uh, he wrote a three-chapter book, and he was living at roughly the time around 600 BC, which was the time when Judah was quickly devolving as a nation. This was the time just before Babylon arose as the preeminent world power and invaded and destroyed the nation of Judah, taking God's people into exile. Habakkuk himself likely had some sort of job in the temple in Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. Uh, and our best clue to this is the last chapter of th this short book of Habakkuk, which is a psalm that he may have composed uh, for the worship of the temple. It's not in the book of Psalms, but we have it here in Habakkuk. And I have always loved the book of Habakkuk. It wrestles with deep questions of suffering and injustice and of the mysteries of God. It's kind of like a mini book of Job in a way. It gets us questioning and thinking. Interestingly, Habakkuk is not preachy. Normally, we think of the prophets as passionate preachers, but not Habakkuk. What he gives us instead are his prayers, his conversations with God. He says, here's what I prayed for. Here's what I asked God about. And guess what? When I prayed this, God answered me, and here's what God said. And what strikes me immediately as I listen to Habakkuk's conversations with God as I hear what Habakkuk is waiting for and what he asks God about, it's that that's different than what we often talk to God about. Because we're often looking at the surface of things. We're taking life at face value as we experience it, and we're talking to God about that. But often what we're missing is the larger things that are going on beneath the surface. And so we don't see what's really happening behind the scenes of history. Well, not Habakkuk. He's digging underneath the surface. He's digging for what's really going on. Or to change the analogy, he's flying above the surface to look down and to see the bigger picture, 
And when we go with him and when we get his view on things, what we might come to realize is that we've been waiting for some of the wrong things. I may have shared this before. Uh, several years ago, uh, when one of the television networks was celebrating the 50th anniversary of D-Day, the Normandy, uh, the Allied invasion of Normandy, they interviewed two World War II veterans who had been part of the fighting. And one was a Marine who had landed on Omaha Beach and was right in the thick of the battle. All around him were deafening explosions, machine gun fire, casualties, chaos. While meanwhile, the second person they interviewed was a US reconnaissance pilot who was flying above, who had an aerial view of the whole situation. And he too saw the soldiers dying on the beaches, but he also saw the growing success of the invaders and the penetration by the paratroopers and the effectiveness of the aerial bombardments. And so from his perspective, he saw that the invaders were winning. And that's kind of the, the big sort of big picture perspective that Habakkuk has flying above, a perspective that shows us what's really going on which isn't to say that it's necessarily a positive perspective. To change the analogy, the difference between Habakkuk's perspective and ours might be that we're down on a cruise ship on the deck, let's say playing a board game, maybe a game of chess or something, and we're all wrapped up in the game and, and whether we're gonna win the game. And meanwhile, Habakkuk has climbed up onto the bridge and he's calling out that the ship is starting to sink. That's what prophets do. They rise above street level and they speak into what's really going on. Sometimes with words of hope, sometimes with words of warning or even impending doom. There's a, a place in another minor prophet, uh, the prophet Amos, where he says in Amos 3.7, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. What is really happening is not obvious to us. We can't often see it from street level. We can't see from reading the New York Times or watching Newsmax what's going on. But God, Amos says, reveals it to his prophets. God enables them to fly above and to see the big picture. You know, there are so many times recently that I would have loved to talk to a prophet to get God's take on the past few years. I'd like to know what God thinks, for instance, of statements like the one Pastor John MacArthur made to Donald Trump several months ago when MacArthur told Trump, any real true believer is going to be on your side in this election. I'd like to know what God thinks of other pastors who said just the opposite. No real follower of Jesus could vote for Trump. I'd like to know what God thinks of the theology that was going around a few years ago and still crops up now and then that Trump was God's chaos candidate. That like Cyrus the Persian, he was someone who doesn't know God and doesn't honor God, but God is raising up nonetheless and using for God's purposes. All these contradictory voices use the Bible to support their views, but they can't all be right. Wouldn't it be great to have a prophet to fly above it all, and to tell us what God really thinks of all of this. What is God really doing in our nation? Is God working in our nation to save our nation? 
Or is God working in our nation to punish our nation, to discipline us? Is a Biden presidency God's working to save us or God's working to punish us? If God did want to punish us by giving us a certain president, should we vote for that punishment candidate or should we vote against the punishment candidate? And is the one who won in 2016 or 2020 necessarily the one God wanted to win? Can we say that the one who is president is God's will for us? So many hard questions. Wouldn't it be great to have a prophet to draw some lines between the Bible and our situation today to show us how the Bible should apply and how it shouldn't? Because here's the problem. We're all down here in the trenches at street level. We can't really see what's going on. And that's actually what Habakkuk wants to chasten us with in his book, to humble us before a mighty and mysterious God so that we stop being so sure we know what God is doing and what God's will is. Because God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So in this book, we're invited into the prayer life of this prophet, this man of God, to follow his conversation with God and to see what we can learn for ourselves. And here's the first thing we need to know as we dig into Habakkuk. If we are asking the wrong questions, we will get the wrong answers. If we're praying for the wrong things, we're not going to get answers from God. If our hearts are in the wrong place, we're not going to be able to hear what God is having to say to us. Look at where Habakkuk's heart is in verses two to four. Look what he's waiting for. Not his own comfort, not prosperity for himself and his family, not security and safety, but justice. Habakkuk's heart is set on justice. He's waiting for justice. Look at his complaint. He, he complains to God, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous. Do you see what Habakkuk is waiting for? Do you see what grieves him? It's injustice. It's violence. It's the wicked oppressing the righteous. Justice has always been the cry of the prophets. Because they knew that God cares about justice. God cares when the rich and the powerful oppress the weak and the poor. God cares when some sorts of people have every advantage and others can't get a fair shake. If you know anything about Habakkuk's day shortly before the exile, then you know that it was full of injustice. Just read the prophet Jeremiah. And Habakkuk is crying out about this injustice to God. Let me ask you, in your prayers, do you cry out about injustice? Do you cry out on behalf of the weak, uh, the powerless, the voiceless, the oppressed, Or do you mainly ask God for your own prosperity and that of your loved ones? 
for your own comfort, for your own security. If you're already living a relatively comfortable life and still you're mainly praying for your own well-being, don't expect much back in the way of an answer from God. Sure, God loves you, but God's not going to be particularly moved by those sorts of prayers. That's not the kind of praying that enters into God's heart and resonates with God's will for God's world. No, if you want to move God, pray like Habakkuk, which is also, by the way, the way the psalmists pray. How long, Lord? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. Justice never prevails. That's the kind of praying that that leads us into the heart of God and puts us in a good position to be able to receive an answer from God. So in your prayers this Advent, what are you asking for? What are you waiting for? What What am I waiting for? What are we longing for? The Prince of Peace, who will one day return to bring justice, to raise up the lowly, to bring down the mighty? Are you getting yourself ready? Are you preparing your heart for the King of Justice to come back to us again? Well, then in verses 5 to 11, Habakkuk gets an answer from God. God answers his prayer. Can you believe it? Wouldn't you love to cry out to God for him to answer and to get the answer to the thing you asked about? Habakkuk experiences this. Only here's the the second thing we learn from Habakkuk's conversation with God. God's answer is baffling and mysterious. The answer that God gives Habakkuk is not all that Habakkuk is expecting. It's not all that he wants to hear. God's answer, in fact, leaves Habakkuk disturbed and confused and baffled and distraught. Basically, God says, Habakkuk, I see the injustice among my people. And like you, I am disturbed by it. And I'm going to deal with it. I am going to make it right, just as you are asking me to do. But the way I'm going to do it is going to utterly amaze you. You wouldn't even believe it if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come and punish your people. I am going to go find the worst, evilest, most unjust nation around, Babylonians, the Babylonians, and I'm going to let them come and pound your people into the ground. The Babylonians are coming, and I am sending them. They are ruthless. They are cruel. They are impetuous and greedy and hasty and violent. They seize homes, buildings, businesses of whomever they wish. They boast of their greatness. They do what they want. They ignore every norm of morality and civility. They're going to swarm over you swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves. They are coming to devour, to kill, to imprison without mercy, without morality. In fact, they worship only their own greatness, their own might. So Habakkuk, be afraid. Be very afraid. That's, how is that for God's answer to a simple prayer for justice? Could there be anything more unjust on the face of it than to replace really bad people with far worse people? 
Habakkuk is amazed. He's, he's shocked. He's absolutely disturbed and distraught. He's been thrown headlong into the mystery of God, into world happenings that are chaotic and catastrophic, that make no sense, that can't be explained by pastors or theologians, that can't be worked out by ethicists or philosophers. And folks, the point here is that we're to be humbled along with Habakkuk. It's that we're being thrown by God headlong into a deep sea of mystery. With all of our big pompous declarations about which politicians are on God's side and what God's will is, how do we know what God's will is? How do we know what God is up to? Are you a prophet? Has a prophet spoken on behalf of God about our times? Now, I'm not questioning that we know what is right and what is wrong. Certainly, God has said plenty in his word to make that clear. The Bible tells us, I believe, how we should feel about the issues of our day, whether it's marriage and sexuality or racism or abortion or caring for the poor. And Habakkuk was clear on right and wrong in his day. He knew what justice should look like on a human level and how important it is. He was dead right that there was injustice in Judah, and he was right to pray against it. But the bigger question is, the one we know less about is, what is God going to do about it? What is God going to do about it? How should God deal with a nation in response to their injustice and their wickedness? guess what? God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God doesn't see things the way we see them because only God sees them from far above. God sees from above and weighs the facts and aspects that we can't see. And God is playing the long game and looking at the big picture. And so when God announced what he was doing or what he was going to do, Habakkuk is sent reeling. And hopefully you, like me, are sent reeling with him as you read this book. And so as we wait this Advent, God wants to shake up what we're waiting for. What are you waiting for? What am I waiting for? God here is questioning that and challenging us to think again. Well, now we come to the, the, um, the third section of this first chapter, verses 12 and following. And so what does Habakkuk do in response? How does he respond to God's answer to him? Habakkuk complains some more. And then he waits. In his shock and confusion at God's answer, Habakkuk calls God to task. Verse 13, Lord, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? God, if it's bad that wicked leaders in Judah are oppressing the weak, then it's worse for you to allow far more wicked Babylonians to oppress us. How can you allow this, God? How can you let the far more wicked Babylonians come and punish, come and judge the not quite so wicked leaders of my people, Habakkuk prays. God, this is a grave miscarriage of justice. 
Habakkuk goes on now to describe what it, it, it is like, what it will be like to be attacked and conquered by the Babylonians. Verse 14, he complains, we, speaking of the Jewish people, are like fish swimming in the sea. We've got no leader, no one to help us escape or to offer us protection. And the wicked foe, Babylon, just pulls us all up with his net. He laughs at us as we helplessly flap around on his boat, slowly suffocating. We're helpless. We're at his mercy. And he just wants to sell us for his own profit or for his own luxury. And then even worse, the king of Babylon worships his nets. He actually thinks his false gods have given him all this victory. And he worships them. He worships false gods all the while destroying the people of the true God. This is all wrong, Habakkuk is saying. How can this be happening, God? How can you let this happen? Habakkuk just can't understand it. And so he waits. He waits for an answer. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I will stand at my watch. I will station myself on the rampart. Remember, he's a prophet. He's looking at that aerial bird's eye, big picture perspective, and he's going to keep seeking it. He continues, I will look to see what he, the Lord, will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And God does give him a second answer. But we're going to have to wait for that, too, because we're going to look at that next week. In the meantime, as we celebrate Advent, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the right things? Habakkuk wants to challenge us on this point. And I think there's three things he wants to say to us in this first chapter as we wait for the coming of our King, Jesus Christ. First, it's that God works slowly. We live a mere 70, 80, 90 years, and then our life is done. But God and this world live on. And God is at work in it, but slowly. God is playing the long game, and we don't always see the point of it in the short term. And so second, Habakkuk wants us to know that God works mysteriously from our perspective. Sometimes what God allows to happen baffles us. After all, we're at the street level view. We, we don't see the big picture perspective. We can't take into account all that God takes into account. And so often we're just baffled and confused by what God does. And then third, I think Habakkuk would want us to know, getting our focus back on Advent now, that, that Habakkuk didn't have this privilege, but we sit in a privileged position in that we can see how all that Habakkuk was looking forward to panned out in history. We can see how Babylon indeed did come and brought God's justice on Judah, and then how eventually God brought justice on Babylon. We can see how God then restored his people, finally sending them a good king, a just king, who would faithfully administer God's kingdom among them. That's the one who was born at Christmas, right? In the famous words of Isaiah 9 that we read at the Advent candle, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This king who came at the first Christmas and who we are waiting for to come again, he isn't Santa Claus. He's not coming to give us everything on our Christmas list. No, he's coming to reign. And he's coming to bring justice, true justice, fair justice, to make things right with this world, to create a a fair and good world for all peoples to live in which will mean that he will raise up the have-nots and he will bring down the haves. Isn't that what his mother Mary exclaimed when he was in her womb in the Magnificat, that in in sending Jesus, God was bringing down rulers from their throne and lifting up the humble. That God was filling the hungry with good things, but sending the rich away empty. Is that what you're waiting for? Are you waiting for God's true justice through Jesus Christ? If not, that's what Advent is for, to remember, to prepare our hearts, to bring them into line with God's plans and God's priorities. May that be true of each of us this Advent as we wait. That's why in our family as we travel through Advent and then we come to Christmas morning and we welcome the the coming of this King, it's not the time when we open our presents. Instead, after we've read the Christmas story and we've welcomed this King into the world, we give a gift to Jesus, the King who has come to bring justice. We take a Christmas catalog from one of the uh, poverty relief organizations like World Vision And we pick out a goat or a flock of chicks or farm equipment, and we pay for it to be donated to a family in need as an act of justice, as an act of worshiping the king who is raising up the lowly and filling the hungry with good things. And this is just one way we remind ourselves of of, of who Jesus is and why our king has come. There are many other ways that, that it can be done. So as we wait this Advent, as we wait actively, how will you prepare yourself for the one who's coming, who will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever? So as we close now, as we sing this last song, I invite you to prepare your hearts for the coming king. We're going to sing the song Everlasting God.